This is That's So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Giesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. Welcome back. That's So Second Millennium is breaking radio silence to bring you my colleague, Dr. Daniel Shields. We have a conversation that centers on the topics and his forthcoming book comes out June 30th about nature and nature's God, where he goes deep into the arguments of Thomas Aquinas's first way, his first uh, way that uh, is an argument for the existence of God. But it's also a gateway into talking about some very real issues in contemporary uh, philosophy of nature and therefore of natural science. So it's a delightful conversation. I enjoyed having it with him. And I enjoyed the uh, excuse that the coming of his book has uh, given us. (laughs) We were hired two years ago, and this book has been in production the entire time. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. Today on the podcast, I'm very privileged to have my colleague, Dr. Daniel Shields, He has an undergraduate degree from Thomas Aquinas College in California, and his PhD in philosophy is from Catholic University of America. We were hired the same year, two years ago, and we both work at Wyoming Catholic College. So today, we'd really uh, like to focus the podcast on Daniel's upcoming book. Would you mind uh, introducing that book just briefly, what its contents are? Yeah, the book is titled Nature and Nature's God. And it's about Aquinas' first way, it's often called, the argument from motion to an unmoved mover. Mm -hmm. So, I ask permission to read this review. So, the the book is available from the Catholic University of America Press and comes out on June 30th. And here's a review that's posted on the website. Daniel Shields has written the most important book on Aquinas' first way to be written in decades. Shields rightly avoids the temptation of interpreting the first way proof as simply metaphysical, a temptation that so many recent commentators have succumbed to, thereby making the first way into merely a version of one or more of the other four ways, or of the argument in De Ante et Essentia. Instead, Shields insists on taking seriously the focus on motion or change, locating the argument within Thomas's philosophy of nature. Ironically, it is precisely by relating the argument to the details of Aristotle's actual physics that Shields succeeds in making the argument relevant and compelling in modern terms, since the relevant features of Aristotle's theory have counterparts in modern science, especially in the second law of thermodynamics. Shields also avoids the error of claiming the argument proves more than Thomas himself believed. He shows exactly how Thomas proposed to build on the first way to demonstrate God's central attributes, including his pure actuality and necessity, Shields shows that his interpretation avoids the standard objections, including those of Scotus, David Hume, Paul Edwards, and Anthony Kennedy, from Robert Coons at UT Austin. So, that's high praise, of course. So, and it's, a, it's an intriguing book because it, as you say, it's nature and nature is God. And so, as a podcast is focused on science, we're talking about the philosophy of nature. And so, that's obviously deeply relevant to us. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you have a response to that and how we can launch into what the content of the book is about in more detail? Yeah, um, I'm grateful to Professor Coons for his kind review. He's a leader in the uh, movement to integrate Thomism with uh, modern science, um, and 
his knowledge of the relevant physics is impressive. Um, it's gratifying to me that he found the book to be a positive contribution, uh, and I thought he summed it up nicely. So in the course of the book, the book breaks down into, as I recall, three parts? Uh, two parts. Two parts, okay. Two major parts, yeah. Really just kind of the the part understanding it in Thomas's terms, and then the part relating it more to modern science. That's right. Okay. So Thomas, um, so as, as someone, obviously, whose interest in philosophy is, is more avocational at this point, um, yeah, I've, I've been exposed to bits and pieces here and there of Aristotelian and Thomistic uh, philosophy. So I know that Aquinas provides a number of arguments or the sketches of arguments for the existence of God in at least three different works. So the Summa Contra Gentiles, the Summa Theologiae, which is where the five ways is present, are presented. Um, there's this work De Ante Descentia, which I'm not really familiar with. Um, is that a complete list of the works where he presents such arguments? Or are there yet more of them? Uh, there are more. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a version of the unmoved mover argument in his compendium theologiae. Okay. He, um, there's uh, addresses the unmoved mover arguments in his commentaries on Aristotle's physics mm-hmm. and metaphysics, which is the original source of those um, books, uh, or excuse me, those arguments. Um, Arguments, versions of some of these arguments show up in other places. Mm-hmm. It's disputed questions on truth. Um, uh, very briefly, the argument from uh, you know, uh, teleology shows up in his uh, prologue to his commentary in John's Gospel. So, okay. um, But those three works that you named are probably the most important uh, sources for his proofs for God's existence. Mm-hmm. So... Can we enumerate sort of, so that there are the five ways which are presumably, certainly in Thomas's mind, he wouldn't have bothered enumerating five of them if he didn't see distinctions between all five, mm-hmm. and how those relate to the arguments elsewhere, if we could put them in context. Yeah, so the Summa Theologiae has the five ways, and this is most famous proofs for God's existence, um, and there they come at the very beginning of a work of theology, not a work of philosophy, although it's very heavy on philosophical content. Um, And in many ways, they're more like sketches of arguments that um, should be elaborated at much greater length, but um, we're we're fine to begin a work on theology with. Um, The first... Reminders to the student more than actual complete arguments. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think they are complete arguments in a way, but not in such a way that they are fully elaborated, mm-hmm. right? All the pieces are there, um, but for those who are not, say, already um, convinced of God's existence and who actually needed a proof for God's existence um, right. to believe in him, um, they would need more elaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to engage in a real dispute about the matter, Thomas would have brought more to bear, and presumably does in these other works. Yeah. Yeah, in particular, right, the first way in the Summa Theologiae is this argument from motion to an unmoved mover. Um, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, he gives two versions of that argument, and they are much longer than, uh, each one of them is much longer than that argument in the Summa Theologiae. So that gives one just a taste of how much elaboration um, can be given to these arguments to flesh them out. Mm-hmm. 
you make use of that extensively in this book. I do, yeah. Um, particularly um, the second argument for motion in the Summa Contra Gentiles. It receives an awful lot of um, attention in the book. Mm-hmm. So what, so what is distinct about the first way in the Summa Theologiae as compared to the other four ways? Aquinas calls it the more manifest way. Right. He thinks it's um, somehow the most accessible of them. And he puts it first. He also puts it the, these other versions of it first in the um, Summa Contra Gentiles. Mm-hmm. In his um, Compendium of Theology, which kind of parallels the Summa, but is, is much briefer and, and less elaborate than the, than the Summa is, he leads off with just one argument, and it's the motion argument to an unmoved mover. So clearly, Aquinas sees this as the kind of flagship argument. Um, so it, it's special to him, and I think that's in part because of his respect for Aristotle, because that's Aristotle's main argument for God's existence. Okay. And so largely due to uh, being able to audit classes that you've taught. I've had a little bit more exposure to Aristotle in the past year. And so this brings to mind the distinction that Aristotle sometimes makes between things that are more knowable to us as opposed to, in some sense, more knowable in themselves. Uh Is this an argument that's supposed to be more knowable to us? Yes, yes, I think that's right. Um, And in that way, it's not the argument that gives one the most insight about who, who God is, right? There are more metaphysical arguments that provide a deeper insight, but they're um, harder for um, us human beings who begin all of our knowledge with sense experience uh, um, to, to grasp, right? Whereas the argument for motion is much more grounded in things that we can actually see right, and observe. Yeah, yeah. If, if I may draw a Wyoming metaphor, it's like uh, whether I want to start out on the Middle Fork Trail, which I can just drive to the parking lot and start on the Middle Fork Trail, as opposed to go hiking a trail somewhere in the winds that I already have to hike six miles from my parking lot to get even to the beginning of that trail. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. <laughs> so these other arguments demand a little bit more uh, background or, you know, preliminary work from the reader than the first way does. Yeah, and I think that um, some of these more profound arguments, metaphysical arguments, require not just more preparation, but some mentally difficult preparation. You're kind of right. climbing a pretty steep trail there. Yeah, yeah. One of one of those trails where you, you know, it, it just sets to work uh, beating you senseless immediately. It's like, let's mm-hmm. climb a thousand feet in the first half a mile, yeah. and then do it yeah. again. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, so your book focuses on interpreting the first way, and, and uh, Dr. Coons in his review focuses on, um, in his view, the advantage of your work is that it does not fall into the error of regarding the first way as a metaphysical argument. Um, so, so obviously we're drawing a distinction between natural philosophy and metaphysics, so let's try to make sure that for our audience we have a clear distinction as to what we mean by each of those terms. Yeah, so traditionally um, those were seen as two different philosophical disciplines or philosophical sciences, um, both being um, 
speculative rather than practical. Speculative not meaning, mm-hmm. oh, we don't know this, we're just guessing, but rather that it's about um, things that we don't make or do, where mm-hmm. we're just trying to understand the nature of reality, whereas practical philosophy as ethics and politics um, as, as its two main disciplines. Um, so natural philosophy is the philosophical study of the material world that we can observe with our senses. Um, it proceeds by kind of conceptual analysis of our experience, especially common experience, um, but it's not close to the more special experience that modern science provides. Um, whereas metaphysics is not restricted to the domain of the material world. Mm-hmm. or the world that is accessible to sense experience. It's the study of being as such, right? Mm-hmm. Which means it's the study of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it has no limitations, which m- makes it much more abstract because mm-hmm. you're talking about things that could apply both to um, asteroids and angels. Right? Um, and Even if Aristotle didn't necessarily believe you know, have, have a conception of either one of those things. And that's certainly what we would today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, it's, as, since it's so much more abstract, it's much more removed from sense experience. Mm-hmm. So it's harder for one to know what one is talking about in metaphysics than in natural philosophy. Um, it, that it's very powerful and fundamental, and, and it's really the heart of philosophy. It gets at the most fundamental aspects of reality, but I think it's very difficult to get to a point where metaphysics is actually working f- mm-hmm. for oneself. Right. It's easy to, to relatively easy to get a kind of educational acquaintance with metaphysics, and that's valuable. Um, but metaphysics is always in the danger of being a kind of word game. Like we've got these words, essence, existence, and we're kind of get used to how we're supposed to put them together, but don't really have the insight that's required. Um, So I think it actually takes an awful lot of work to to become capable of of being a metaphysician. Sure. Whereas natural philosophy is much more accessible because it's much closer to the senses. Mm -hmm. And as the more manifest way of proving God's existence, the first way, the unmoved mover argument, is a natural philosophy argument. It should be um, accessible to just about everyone. So in that context as well, that means that motion is going to be a term that we will need to understand as well. It doesn't mean the same thing for Aristotle or Thomas that it does for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there's some overlap, certainly, because motion is something observable by our senses. But it's certainly understood in some very different ways, um, uh, historically. Um, one of the, the, you know, in the first part of the book, I consider how Aquinas and Aristotle are, are thinking about it. But then in the second part of the book, I try to look at the history of science starting with um, the Copernican Revolution, really, um, or maybe even slightly before that, and then going up to today. And one of the major things that happens there is, in light of the Copernican Revolution, um, 
the principle of inertia becomes a thing. Right. Right. Where motion... Uh, Constant motion in a straight line is somehow not motion in a sense. I mean, you could define it that way. Perhaps <laughs> yeah. the to define it. Yeah. The, uh, Newton even you, you speaks of a state of motion. That seems, in some ways... Um, paradoxical, right? right? Um, a, a stasis and motion, right? But on the other hand, it kind of makes sense. Um, but so one of the things that that the argument has to do is, so to speak, adapt to that understanding that motion doesn't just head um, always to a specific place and then stop there, right? right? Which is how Aristotle and, and Saint Thomas thought about it. But it can, at least in principle, continue on forever mm-hmm. in a straight line with nobody pushing it. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no no new force is, is required. Right? Um, and I take that in a in a realist way. Mm-hmm. Right? That 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 that's actually true. That's not just something we say um, mm-hmm. when we're in our science mode. Right. right. Um, but that that's something actually true about reality um but the interesting thing is that newton himself gives a version of aquinas's unmoved mover argument mm-hmm. he doesn't um newton is very much a theist yeah yeah um some might say a deist um mm-hmm. but he um without uh, making any references to aquinas and probably not even consciously connecting um, his thought with Aquinas's thought or Aristotle's thought. Uh, Newton describes a universe in which he, he says that uh, motion is, is much more easily um, uh, lost than gained. Right? The principle of inertia, uh, interestingly enough, he says, does not guarantee that motion, uh, that the quantity of motion in the universe remains at the same level because as he sees it, every time there's a collision of any kind, some motion is lost. Right? Okay. The bodies don't rebound with the same amount of motion, mm-hmm. with the same velocity as, uh, with which they approached each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and more significantly in his mind, he thinks that uh, orbital motion is something that requires a kind of precise balance between inertia and gravity, mm-hmm. and that over time that balance is slowly lost. So that eventually God would have to, so to speak, mend the solar system Uh if it's going to keep on doing its thing. And Newton seemed to think that God did this periodically Uh to to kind of keep the universe going. Uh He um, set it back in order, right? Uh, uh, Put the the thing back in balance because the comets would would slowly... um, uh, make the planets deviate a little bit from their orbits, right? yeah. um, and that over eons these slight deviations accumulate, and mm-hmm. you end up with the solar system, you know, flying apart or everything crashing in it together. Crashing in right? together, yeah. So, um, so he he too, like Aquinas, thinks that motion can't continue forever mm-hmm. without God sustaining it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and perhaps that's an important background, actually, um, that maybe you should have mentioned earlier. Um, the way I present the argument and uh, make the case in the first part of the book is um, uh, somewhat different than the way the argument's normally understood. Right. right? Uh, a lot of times people um, 
in kind of the, the most simplistic version of the argument, people maintain that Aquinas' argument is that motion as such could not continue for even a moment unless God, um, maybe through a number of intermediaries, but, but mm-hmm. God has to continually be pushing bodies along. Otherwise, motion cannot continue. He's okay. the unmoved mover for every motion mm-hmm. at every moment. Right. But through a lot of... Uh, These intermediate clauses on this view can't sustain themselves that's for right. any, any finite length of time. Yeah. Um, or even for an instant right. on the, yeah. on the sim- simplistic view. Um, whereas through a lot of you know, careful textual analysis, I show that what Aquinas, the, what he actually thinks is that the motion could not continue indefinitely if God was not moving the universe. If God were to stop moving the universe, uh, Aquinas thinks that the universe would go through a kind of wind-down period. And in that wind-down period, the the planets would stop moving, Mm -hmm. and because the planets stopped moving, they would stop, uh, you know, supporting life here on earth and and, and uh, energizing the chemistry so to speak to, to use modern terms but to use Thomistic terms all mixed bodies bodies that were composed of elements would undergo go a process of corruption and the elements would separate and okay. each of the elements would return to its proper place and, right. then, and then you'd have a universe in stasis. Sure. You would, and you would have some, you know, the earth at the bottom, water on top of it, which sounds very much like the beginning of a Genesis, and then air, and then fire, and then, you know, the trans, you know, the, the quintessential, the quintessential and, you know, translunar. Yeah. yeah, and all the heavenly bodies yeah. up to the, to the heavenly and sphere. Be, yeah. And they would just be stopped. They would just be hanging there. That's right. Um, whereas, if in order for motion to continue here on earth, the sun has to be rising and setting and, and, and helping plants grow and, mm-hmm. and making the wind move and the water and, and so on and so forth. And that was the theory of the time was that every every planet had its influence on different elements and so forth. And That's so their, right. their constant motion kept sort of swirling them together and keeping things mixed and yeah. interacting with each other. That's right. Um, and although modern science kind of has debunked the idea that the you know, planet Saturn is doing anything particularly Im- interesting and important here on Earth. Nevertheless, the sun and the moon certainly still are. Right. They're absolutely essential to all of the, the life and chemistry that goes on here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the moon through the tides, right. um, and then the sun in more obvious ways. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so, so coming back to Newton, he too thinks that... Um, motion as we know it couldn't continue indefinitely if God did not mend the universe. Sure. So, And, and what you're saying is that's very, very um, close to what Aquinas seems to believe. That's right. With, with the, the difference that for Newton, at least motion of an uninteresting kind could continue forever. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh you know, the planets get ejected from the solar system and they could just keep on flying, mm-hmm. you know, off. Or they could all crash space. into the sun. Yeah, yeah. 
Whereas for Aquinas, there would be absolute motionless, not just an absence of this kind of orderly motion that makes the life and chemistry that, that we're interested in continue, mm-hmm. but just mo- motion as such. Motion period, yeah. 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 So, so for uh, Aquinas, he thinks that, um, that this, this kind of understanding of motion shows that God must exist because either God got the universe started and it just hasn't run down yet mm-hmm. or God is continually keeping the universe moving. Yeah. Right? He kind yeah. of presents it as a disjunctive argument. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Explicitly in the Summa Contra Gentiles. Let's come back to that. I would like to kind of finish off um, the discussion about metaphysics and why the first way is not a met- metaphysical argument and then I would love to come back to that point. Okay. So can we go there? Why why have Thomas been drawn to interpret the first way as an argument in metaphysics in at least recent decades or centuries? Yeah, I think that uh, for one one very important reason is that interpreting it as a metaphysical argument makes it far removed from uh, the science's area of expertise mm-hmm. which means that the argument which again as i've said it seems to be aquinas's kind of flagship argument it becomes completely immune to any scientific developments right all right and so that makes it feel safe right. and um a philosophical safe space that that's right um so it makes it easier to defend because one doesn't have to know um, anything about modern science to be able to to kind of address it because it's just not relevant if yeah. it's it's interpreted as a metaphysical argument. Um, and secondly, science is something that, um, as you know, changes from generation to generation. Theories right. that were um, uh, seen as as relatively strong in one generation might be seen as as uh, superseded in another generation, right? right? And and Thomas have a, a, a predilection for arguments that stay put. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, which is a beautiful thing, and there's there's a time and a place for it. But if we have four metaphysical arguments and one natural philosophy argument, we may need to let the chips fall where they may with the first way, and you know, learn to roll with the punches. I th- yeah, I think that's right. So, as a natural philosophy argument, it's it's still not a scientific argument, but natural philosophy is closer to science, mm-hmm. and the the things that science um, discovers are relevant mm-hmm. in a more immediate way for natural philosophy than they are for metaphysics. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, and this this very fact that uh, sort of metaphysicizing. I won't use that word again. Uh, you know, put it, putting this argument into the realm of metaphysics also puts it out of interest to many people, which is problematic in yeah. itself. Yeah, because there are a, a plenty of people who are interested in, in metaphysics, um, even people who are not professional philosophers. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people who find metaphysics... Uh, um, unapproachable or just something that they have no faith or trust in sure. because it's um, because they're more empirically minded yeah. right? and it's it seems that to, in, in the view of, of 
people with that mindset, metaphysics can seem like, well, it's just these these words. You can kind of say what you want. You can have your own theories. Um, whereas something that's grounded um, more in experience seems more certain and safe and accessible to them. Right? So I think that St. Thomas would like to have, and that contemporary Thomas should want to have, both metaphysical arguments that are intrinsically more powerful and get you farther, mm-hmm. but also these natural philosophical arguments that are more accessible to the empirically minded. Yeah. 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 I mean, even scripture makes, you know, appeals in multiple directions. I mean, there's, you know, God's statement to Moses that I am who am, you know, that sounds, that's very metaphysical. Mm-hmm. But, and then Paul at the beginning of the letter to the Romans makes some appeals that are very much more in this vein of, you know, this is, it's clear, you know, it's clear the universe is built this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the book of wisdom too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so can we sketch briefly what Thomas is basing his work on the first way? What, 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 who are his precursors? Obviously Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, what are his other influences in, in his, in his synthesis that is what we call the first way? Yeah. I think that, um, Probably the most important influence, other than Aristotle, uh, is, interestingly enough, Moses Maimonides, who Mm -hmm. is a Jewish Aristotelian philosopher from the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Um, And Moses Maimonides solved an important issue for anyone who wants to be both a a believer and a a religious believer and an Aristotelian. Aristotle builds his unmoved mover argument on uh, a foundation that seems opposed to religious belief. He's, he starts his whole argument the, with the, the major first step being that one that, that he proceeds to, to his mind, prove that the universe has no beginning. Right? But, of course, Jews and Christians and Muslims believe that the universe has a beginning. That's the most natural way to read Genesis 1, for example. And that seems to make the unmoved mover argument not a great candidate for a Christian or a Jewish or a Muslim philosopher. Um, Moses Maimonides uh, realizes that the argument can be... um, salvaged for a religious believer if the whole thing is is set within the context of the disjunctive move that I described before. You say, look, um, so Aristotle's arguments did not succeed in demonstratively showing that the universe had had no beginning. But Maimonides and Aquinas after him also don't think that we've got demonstrative arguments to show that the universe has a beginning. So if we don't know whether or not it has a beginning, we can... From the standpoint of natural philosophy. That's right. Yeah, from the standpoint of reason. Right. Um, that leaves a open room open for religious faith. If religious, uh, if God reveals that the universe has a beginning, that's not in conflict with the reason God has given us. But reason itself doesn't lead us to that conclusion. So Maimonides says, "Well, either it had a beginning or it didn't. If it did have a beginning, 
God surely must have existed because whatever comes to be anew has some cause that brings it into being. Right. Things don't just come into existence out of nothing. Um, but on the other hand, if the universe has been around forever, that's, that thesis is much more um, uh, amenable to the atheist's way of thinking. But if we have Aristotle's argument that shows that for the universe to continue forever, you need this unmoved mover right. who's not subject to uh, the corruption that natural things are subject to, right. um, or to, or just to getting tired the way any physical mover gets tired and wears mm-hmm. out, right? Then, then you've kind of got it made, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you show even on the atheist's favored presumption or favored hypothesis that the universe has no beginning it still follows that God exists. And Aquinas adopts that move from Moses Maimonides um, uh, and, uh, as he kind of states clearly in the Summa Contra Gentiles. Okay, okay, okay. And so, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's heady stuff to have for, uh, for Maimonides to have uh, <laughs> managed to, you know, introduce that. I mean, because, yeah, that was... That was a fraught environment in the early second millennium with this mm-hmm. debate between whether you could be an um, Aristotelian and an actual Christian at the same time, mm-hmm. or or a believing Jew or a believing Muslim. Yes, uh, ser- serious debates about that. Yeah, yeah. Maimonides is interesting for another reason, by the way, and that he, um, although he he um, accepts the kind of um, uh, geocentric. Uh, Cosmology with the heavenly sphere of his of his day, mm-hmm. he says, we actually don't know mm-hmm. what's going on up there. Right. Like he realizes that these theories are certainly not proven, and sure. in recognizing the limitations of the astronomy of his day, mm-hmm. right, I think he's sensitive, as is Aquinas, to the need of building an argument that although having this medieval cosmology as its background, not um, uh, building too much on details that are not yet mm-hmm. fully firm. Right. Right. Building too much on the, you know, the primum mobile, and, you know, the, the motion transferring from one sphere to another, mm-hmm. things of that nature. Yeah. I think in his, in his compendium of theology, the really abbreviated account, he's, he presents the unmoved mover argument in a way that I think really depends on that cosmology, but that's the quickest way to do it. It makes it so easy and accessible to the sure. people of his day. But in, in the Summa Theologiae and the Summa Contra Gentiles, he's more careful mm-hmm. about not depending or not committing the argument too much to details that are not fully certain. So that's given us some context in terms of, you know, where Aquinas' argument comes from, why it's a, why it's important to interpret it in its context of natural philosophy rather than trying to isolate it. Um, so, and then we've already begun to, to relate it to Newtonian, you know, Newton's own conception of the universe. So the second part of your book really opens that up, um, and you, how would you say, and reinterpret the argument in new contexts, the different contexts of modern uh, science. Yeah, yeah. As um, as Coons mentioned in his review, the development of uh, thermodynamics is kind of 
kind of a key mm-hmm. um, to the book, right? Um, Newton, uh, you know, as I indicated, says that motion is lost when things collide, but when thermodynamics finally started to get off the ground in, in the 19th century, uh, it became clear that when when bodies collide, that although some of that motion is lost, it's energy is conserved because the motion uh, that was lost is just turned into heat or to sound, um, or maybe in some cases to light. Um, and that that energy is not lost and can in fact be returned into mm-hmm. motion uh, right. of the of the visible kind, right? Yeah, uh, but that there's clearly something that happens and some way in which the world changes as a, as a result of these processes, and that brings us to the more mysterious concept of entropy. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second law of thermodynamics, right? Yeah. The conservation of energy being the, the first law, um, right? So even though uh, energy is always conserved, uh, no matter what uh, physical interactions there are, uh, energy tends to find its way into an unusable form, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, it tends to find its way into the form of heat, and heat can only... Uh, uh, be transformed back into other forms of energy if there's a temperature difference between two bodies yeah. with this thermal energy, yeah. right? And at the same time, all bodies at different temperatures have a tendency to equalize their temperatures right. with each other. And once they do that, that energy is there, but you can't really do anything with it anymore. Yeah. You're, you're always having to reach for more of a, of a resource of a certain type in order to you know, move the energy. If you want to move energy from a cold reservoir to a hot reservoir, you have to do even more work. You never get all of that energy out. Yeah, that's right. You have to, we, we can use electrical energy for, to make a temperature difference between the inside of our refrigerator and the outside of our refrigerator, but we, we couldn't then turn around and take that temperature difference and generate as much electricity as we used right. to get it yeah, in the first like place. Yeah. So it's always, a, a, so to speak, a, a losing game, yeah. right? Um, and if we didn't have this... Um, unimaginably massive source of energy that we call the sun. Right. It's very handy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, we would, we would be motion, practically motionless, yeah. right? Yeah. It, there would be no interesting motion yeah. here yeah. on earth, but yeah. the sun, despite being, being practically infinite is not actually infinite, right? right? It can yeah. only go for what, a couple more billion years or something like that. Five billion years, give or take. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, is the best guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 from the standpoint of thermodynamics, the Earth's you know biosphere is such an extravagant. You know, it, it's. I mean, it's just an extravagant user of energy. Mm-hmm. You know, we do all these crazy things. You know, from a chemical thermodynamic standpoint, of there are all of these entities, all of these living beings. You know, ranging from single cell photosynthesizers all the way up to you know the beautiful pine trees out here on the mountain. And they are all busy doing this insane thing of cracking the carbon off of carbon dioxide and releasing pure, red-hot, 
highly reactive oxygen into the atmosphere. And we just kind of take it for granted. I mean, the fact that things catch on fire, that doesn't happen elsewhere in the universe. Yeah. I mean, not very much. It's, you know, you you can't go to Jupiter and simply set the different components of Jupiter on fire because they're all very close to equilibrium. Yeah. Earth is just crazy. Yeah. And I I remember being just blown away in a delightful way Mm -hmm. when I, when I learned that we only have an atmosphere with oxygen because the, the, what is it? Cyanobacteria in the ocean evolved. Right. And then the, and then prior to that point, we we didn't, we, what we had lots of carbon dioxide and water vapor, but, but not this, uh, pure oxygen. That's a very um, highly energetic, um, yeah. unstable, you know, molecule. I always come back to my favorite illustration from um, uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno's planetary science text. Where if you, if you, and of course he wrote this in the mid '90s, so now it's you know actually feasible. We could conceivably, you know, and I think in the book he says we would need to send a probe, but we, of course we don't. We have telescopes now that could give us some clue as to whether the system was like this. We have a system with three planets. One of them has basically no atmosphere. Another one has an atmosphere that's, you know, N percent carbon dioxide, N percent water vapor, and N percent nitrogen. And then a a third one that's some insane thing like, you know, 20% fluorine gas, and then the rest of it's, you know, inert, you know, uh, noble gases or something. Which of the three probably has life? Now, of course, it's a trick question because we put you know, terrestrial life on the third planet, it would be annihilated by the, you know, incredibly, because fluorine is the only more reactive thing we could possibly come up with than oxygen. Um, but that would be the planet you would look for for life, because what could possibly drive something to be, you know, in that, that far out of thermodynamic equilibrium other than something crazy like life? That's the only mm-hmm. thing we know of. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and so that, how, how does that, can we can we interpret that in the context of this you know, argument that, I mean, we, we've referred to it and it's not really the first way per se, but it, it flows out of it, it seems. Uh, this idea that, you know, that both Aquinas and Newton had that somehow the first mover must keep correcting the motion of the universe. Does that does that have a natural analog in this context or what, com- yeah. what comments does that make? Yeah. So you know, when thermodynamics was, was developed, uh, some some of the scientists who developed it immediately saw the implication that within a, a huge but finite amount of time, we'd have to reach maximal entropy or mm-hmm. thermodynamic equilibrium for, for the universe at large. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it, it, I think it was Helmholtz who termed the, the or coined the phrase heat death. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, people began to wonder about the cosmological implications of yeah thermodynamics uh, relatively quickly, right? And I think that a lot of people at the time uh, kind of drew the straightforward conclusion that the universe uh, must have a finite age, right? Mm-hmm. It must have begun a finite amount of time. Mm-hmm. So that, because otherwise, if there was an infinite amount of, of time and that had already elapsed, we would have already reached the heat death. Sure. By now, right? And then it seems that God would have to exist to get the universe started. Um, I think it wasn't noticed at that time that um, uh, that that doesn't strictly speaking follow, mm-hmm. and that what 
you have to think about it logically in the disjunctive way sure. that Aquinas does. That either the universe has only been going for a finite time, and God got it started with a certain amount of um, available energy mm-hmm. um, in a low entropy condition, and that we're still in the process of going from that state, initial state, down to the state of mm-hmm. maximal entropy, the heat death. Or that God is continually adding usable energy, mm-hmm. free energy, um, or he's continually converting um, uh, high entropy energy somewhere in the universe back into low entropy energy. Sure. Or that he does that periodically, the yes. way Newton thought. Right. Or like that it. he both started it and is doing one of those things. And is doing one of those things, yeah, because okay. they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. But in no case could the universe not have God moving it. Right, okay. yeah. Because if, yeah. Because if that was the case, the universe would have been around forever, and we would have reached heat death by now. And there's no mechanism to have kept us out of heat death. Right. You need a being that's not subject to the laws of thermodynamics. Right. Yeah, which are which, as it turns out, are extremely restrictive. Of course, the point is that they they make sense of the universe that we actually inhabit, mm-hmm. in which you know eggs do not spontaneously suck up thermal energy from the floor, and you know broken eggs do not simply jump up off the floor and become intact again, even though you know the the uh, classical mechanics seems to be a two way street. As long as yeah. energy is conserved, and energy would be conserved in either direction. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that has, of course, led to all sorts of philosophical um, explorations of thermodynamics. Because yeah. um, it's non-reversi- non-time reversibility is very um, mm-hmm. uh, strange mm-hmm. from the, mi- the mindset of, of classical mechanics. Yeah. But it, it's interesting, though, that Newton, the, the kind of father and giant at the beginning of classical mechanics, had his own kind of ir- irreversibility built in. Mm-hmm. This wasn't w- well developed into sure. a scientific law the yeah. way the second law of thermodynamics yeah. is. Any more than his version of calculus had all of the you know firm theoretical underpinnings that it later gained. But yeah, mm-hmm. for for where he was in history, Newton still is an amazing, mm-hmm. <laughs> an amazing figure. Yeah. yeah, the things that he that he at least had some you know he had some firm grasp on this would have to happen at some point. I mean, even he had, he had his own initial forays into thermodynamics, like Newton's law of cooling and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when when temperature had barely been, people had really barely begun to wrap their minds around the concept of temperature as we now know it. Yeah. So. So so what uh, are are there any other uh, modern science contexts you want to cover in this? Uh, what what else do you? Uh, in the context of the book, what else? What else do you explore? Um, explore statistical mechanics uh, okay. just a little bit, um, and then uh, contemporary cosmology at greater length. Mm-hmm. Um, so, since we and I, and I talk about biology to a certain extent as well, um, but probably the most fruitful um, of those things to talk about would be contemporary cosmology. Sure. Um, now, on the one, uh, I remember growing up hearing about the Big Bang and I had such um, 
antipathy towards that whole thing because it seemed to me like a like a some sort of replacement or or of of the Genesis creation account mm-hmm. seemed like a secular replacement of it. Um, but I think that that was uh, somewhat nearsighted. Uh, you know, I learned much, much later that it was actually a Jesuit priest who right. uh, came up with that theory in the first place. Who, who then felt the need to kind of hold the Pope back from being a little too uh, enthusiastic <laughs> about it, saying, hey, this basically says Genesis actually happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to, to also, when I learned that the, that the Soviet Union, that was a forbidden theory. Right. Right. For, for that, because it seemed to um, uh, favor the the idea that God started the universe. Right. So uh, I think that uh, it is remarkable how often it gets interpreted that way, though. Yeah, it's, yeah. So the Big Bang is, uh, is it should be welcomed because it it seems to suggest that the universe had a beginning. But on the other hand, um, it seems very clear to me that although the, the evidence now suggests that the universe had a beginning, we can't, from a scientific perspective, prove that nothing happened before the Big Bang, right? That, that there right. was no, that, that um, there's no way through that. Right. I, our theories can't take us back there yet. Yeah. Maybe ever. It's yeah. hard to yeah, say. There's, there's no guarantee that that would ever happen. Yeah. But but it, yeah, but it also doesn't absolutely prove that there was nothing happening before the Big Bang. So I don't want to stake everything. I don't think we should stake everything nowadays on saying that the universe had a beginning and that uh, God had to get it started. But on the other hand, um, it does seem that like our basic cosmological model that is well tested and well accepted is that the our universe be, starts with a big bang and ends in a heat death. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, however, there's a certainly all sorts of ways in which uh, contemporary th- uh, thinkers try to avoid any theistic implications. Right? Um, when we were younger, there Carl Sagan was on TV, sure. right, and he's pro- promoting the, the bouncing universe hypothesis, right? Yeah. Big Bang followed by uh, tar- gravitational recollapse, big crunch, another Big Bang. This just goes back, back and forth, right? But no cosmologist is is um, championing that model anymore um, for one reason because it. Uh, flies in the face of thermodynamics. Right? Mm. You're not going to have an infinite cycle of, of perfect repetitions of bangs and crunches yeah. because each universe is going to inherit entropy from the previous one. Right. You would then have to invoke some completely ad hoc. Oh, and then all the entropy gets erased or yeah. something like that you know, yeah. as a consequence of this process. Yeah. So the, as, I, as I talk about in the book, the, 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 the model that is championed now is the eternal inflation model, mm-hmm. right? where uh, the uh, it's held that in the very early universe there was a very short period in which the universe underwent inflation, so that it it, it grew in size far more rapidly than it is growing now. Yeah, and that you know it, it doubled its size what every like picosecond or something Some, like something, that. Some absurd. <laughs> Yeah, right, like that. So, so that it, it just grows exponentially, and that that theory does is not really 
proved, but it would solve several problems in right. cosmology. So there's it has something at the same forward. time as someone you know outside the field. It's that's also it's it's an ugly. It, it you could you could look at it one one has permission to look at it and say that's kind of ugly that you need something like that in order to fix this theory. Uh-huh. Is there something else? Is there is is there first of all a completely different alternative to the Big Bang that would explain the data? Or is there a different fix that we should apply to the Big Bang hypothesis? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, um, as I understand it, it's not completely without evidence, but I don't think it's got enough evidence to, to, to be a proven It theory. doesn't compel assent. Yeah. The way the inverse square law of gravity does. Yeah. Yeah. Although certainly it is the most popular theory. So many cosmologists think that that, that, that is what happened. Um and then, but inflation itself is then expanded into a model of eternal inflation, mm-hmm. where, where who, which has no experimental support, but only theoretical support. Right? Sure. If if inflation has some experimental support, then theories that could ex- are, are proposed that could explain how inflation would occur, and those theories seem to suggest that inflation is going to occur eternally. Right. So that. There's always, um, uh, or as, well, back up for a moment, during that period of inflation, uh, the idea is that uh, a part of that inflating universe would stop inflating, Mm. but another part would always continue to inflate. And so there's always, because the inflating universe expands so rapidly, there's always some part of the universe that's still or multiverse that's Uh that's still inflating right so that this process could continue forever so that although our universe might reach a heat death at some point there's always some new universe that is um uh uh, come out of the inflating multiverse i was gonna say if if you'll if you'll permit me the image that drops out of warp speed and you know assumes a a normal trajectory yeah like like our bit of the universe apparently yeah and it's a, it's a little bit. I think of it in a little bit like the way in which um, organisms, especially something like bacteria, can, it, it, given in the right conditions, can proliferate so rapidly that if you try to, um, so to speak, exterminate it, you'll kill some of them. But by the time you've killed, you know, these five out of six, the sixth one has turned into another, you know, a dozen. Right. Right. So that, yeah. uh, so to speak, the 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 although parts of the multiverse are, are constantly ceasing to inflate, there's always so much more mm-hmm. that inflation goes on eternally. Sure. Um, now, I don't find that theory compelling, um, but... It also sounds like something that I, I feel like there would, surely there would need to be some sort of divine MacGuffin, like, you know, making something that sounds so incredible continue to work. Yeah, yeah. But the... the so... Even though I don't myself think that that's what's going on, and um, I don't think it's got sufficient evidence to to be compelling to anybody who who doesn't uh, want to or, or doesn't see it as compelling. Nevertheless, even those who do find it uh, convincing have got another problem from the theistic perspective, namely that an eternally inflating universe is subject to the so-called BGV theorem, borda guth Okay. Right? And um, according to that theorem, 
any um, universe that's on average expanding, mm-hmm. um, I cannot um, have no beginning. Okay. All right. Um, and so if one wants to go the eternal inflation route, one ends up with, although a universe without an end, is, you end up with a multiverse with a beginning. Uh, is that a is that a theorem in uh, general relativity or? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Yeah. Um, th- so the only uh, the only response I've seen to that uh, was from Sean Carroll. Okay. Uh, and his claim is, well, at some point we will get a theory of quantum gravity because the, the BGV theorem depends on general relativity. Mm-hmm. When we've got a new theory of quantum gravity, we may find that it doesn't hold. It's conceivable. I could also find a pony waiting for me outside when I get home tonight. I don't know. I mean, it could happen. <laughs> yeah. It might come out exactly the way I want. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Until that happens, yeah. Which, I mean, there's, there's we, we have top men and women working on that right now, so hopefully we will. I mean, obviously, we do want a theory of quantum gravity at some point. but And, and when we get that theory, I'm, my bet on both... Uh, theoretical grounds and on inductive grounds is that just as the history of science is I've kind of sketched now a somewhat of a of a a, a grand um, overview of scientific developments right from the middle ages till now it, at every turn that this idea that motion couldn't go on with no beginning and no end with divine intervention sure has turned out to, to not work yeah. Right. When inertia, despite all of the changes, I mean, from it looked at from another perspective, it's been you know since the 16th uh, century. I mean, that was when Copernicus published the revolution. I mean, this was yeah the 16th century. Um, that was, I mean, it's been it's been one thing after another. Of who wanted this? Mm-hmm. Who who wanted this change? Uh-huh. You know, no one foresaw you know Newtonian physics prior to Newton. Or, I mean, or at least Galileo in some sense. You know, no one, no one foresaw thermodynamics or you know the chemistry, you know, the atoms making a comeback, heliocentrism making a comeback in a completely different form. You know, I mean, that's one thing to say. Yes, in some vague sense, people had the idea that the sun could be the center of the universe. In some vague sense, Democritus thought there could be atoms, but they they were not Dalton's atoms, and they're mm-hmm. certainly not you know J.J. Thomson's atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so this this huge ludicrous sequence of you know us taking you know left turns at around every possible corner that we didn't want to make. and But yeah, as you say, that's constant. Yeah, yeah. You think that inertia would have destroyed uh, the unmover argument, but then it turns out that uh, Newton continues deepest, to support it. The originator <laughs> and deepest thinker about it, you know, was like, oh no, of course we need this. Yeah, yeah. and then you think that the, that the conservation of energy, the first law of thermodynamics, would also destroy Mm-hmm. The unmoved move argument, but the first law of thermodynamics and the second law came basically right on each other's heels. Yeah. Right. And it turns out, uh, yeah, we, we 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 can't get this eternal universe with no beginning and no end to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. The first law by itself is ludicrously optimistic. It does not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it does not describe the world that we actually live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in some sense, it's a common experience, even though it it's it's outlook keeps getting modified by scientific developments the basic idea has held firm right mm-hmm. that when when things move they end up coming to a stop right 
right? They, they, they can move without a mover for so long, but not permanently without a mover, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I kick, I, I kick that soccer ball. It does go. It, mm. it leaves my foot and continues to go, yeah. but not forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, if, if the earth is not swallowed up, you know, and um, by the, you know, red giant phase of the sun, assuming that's the trajectory that the sun is on, you know, its orbit will decay for one reason or another. Then it will either get ejected or, you know, spiral into the sun for some other reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah, none of these things are stable. Nothing, nothing is stable forever. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a huge, compelling uh, uh, exploration of this question. I really thank you for the, the chance to hash this out with you. So those mm-hmm. of you who, uh, who find this intriguing would definitely want to, uh, to look for this book. It, it does come out in the next... Uh, it's, what is two weeks. The, two weeks. Yeah, within the next two weeks. Yeah, it's the 19th today. Yeah, it comes out on June 30th, June 30th, 2023. And so, yeah, be sure to look at the Catholic University of America website. I assume it'll be, I hate to say it, it'll probably be available on Amazon. You could probably find it elsewhere as well. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been a great privilege. Thank you very much. So that's our episode on Nature and Nature's God with its author, Daniel Shields. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. I hope you did as well. As far as that so second millennium, it is still very much on hiatus. Um, there are some things that I need to get straight uh, in terms of priorities in my own life. I am hoping that uh, sometime in the coming academic year, I will get myself established on a schedule that uh, lets me come back to doing this, these uh, either conversations or meditations in one format or another in the uh, coming academic year probably change a little bit about hosting and things of that nature. Uh, But for now, hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation and uh, we'll look forward to uh, coming to you again in the future. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhart. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.